Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do What about the tailgates who spent their whole lives Walks down the footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy Remember that guy, remember that guy Remember that guy, remember that guy They're just gonna remember some guys now Harden one-on-one here. Now James doubling up the Clippers. Clean up on aisle three. Clean up on aisle three. Someone calls someone because there's a clean up on aisle three. As a man is remember that guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey there, folks. Me, one of your hosts, James, not Harden. Let's go ahead and see if management has found anyone to clean up that mess in aisle three. Well, you can throw a lob like James Harden. Unfortunately, I cannot jump anywhere near as high as DeAndre Jordan. Uh, I think my vertical maxes at probably 12 inches. I am Diaz. I'm very happy to be back here once again. We do have a very special guest, though. He is a man that knows exactly what to do with 12 inches. Please introduce yourself. See, I thought you were going a different way there. I know exactly what to do with making sure James Harden can't get off important shots or passes. It's me, Manu Ginobili. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking 40-year-old Manu Ginobili. Just stripping the shit out of James Harden's jump shot. Is, that was an old man. The, the perfect old man block. Like, you, he did it with disdain. This is wholly a product of me, like, coming into the Spurs as late as I did in the Big Three era. That's straight up my favorite Manu Ginobili memory. Not smacking the bat out of the air? See, here's the, I came to learn later on, as I became a Spurs fan, that the guy who slapped the bat that I heard about on SportsCenter once when I wasn't really paying attention to the basketball segments was Manu Ginobili. So that is excellent. And it is even a thing that like I was aware of when it happened, but I was not aware of it as a Manu thing. We're getting into the weeds here, folks. Thank you so much for your patience with us last week. We are thrilled to be back. I know it's been pretty brutal some Monday morning commutes, so let's not waste any more time before we get to what is making memories for us right now. And you know what, guys? We were going to talk about some positive stuff last week when we got together. But I, I think it's good we've waited a week because now I've got all of this steam and pressure built up to talk about my most hated arch rival other than the metropolitan area of Kansas City. And that is Fanatics because they're back at it again. Some baseball uniforms have leaked. And we're not talking about the potentially very bad Philadelphia City Connect jerseys. We're talking about... The Nike, and let me get the specific name of their stupid product line. While you look it up, the Phillies jersey looks like what AI would come up with. Like, that's yeah, the like, best thing that I can say for it. So you have you know, to avoid the City Connect jerseys in general, as only two teams have. The Oakland A's, a team without a actual city, and the Yankees, who refuse to do anything different with their jerseys because their fans might actually murder marketing executives to be fair that's not entirely true you're slightly changing your away jerseys this year and it was made an entire storyline for two seconds but that slightly is like i don't know they're taking the piping off of it no this is the nike vapor premiere and is a much bigger problem because it is widespread it is not just there in the bronx it is all over baseball there's just some really bad jerseys that are being made 
they're designed by Nike. They're being manufactured by Fanatics. While a lot of ire should be held at Fanatics here, there is some to be held at Nike. And I will say real quick, a lot of the information I'm about to say is from some excellent write-ups from Paul Lucas. If you don't know what he does, he's UniWatch. Just an incredible thing that I love reading all the time, the insane minutia of uniforms across all sports. But he had a great write-up. These are the jerseys now. These are not like jerseys that are being sold. These are the jerseys that players are wearing. Majestic has been already having jerseys manufactured by Fanatics for four years, but Nike's coming in now with the design. Now, some people have said the Majestic jerseys have taken a step down since Fanatics did it. Their manufacturing is still shoddy, but the actual design of these like recycled polyester jerseys, which is great in theory, but not good as a material for professional athletes, with heat-applied logos and numbers that also just look like shitty-ass kerning. Seriously, if you have not seen them, like, Take a second, pause this if you are not driving, and open up, look up like Yuki Mitsui in his new Padres jersey, look up Ranger Suarez with the Phillies like you're saying, Diaz. It's for fucking hideous, and now that you're back from seeing that. Nike has this shoddy craftsmanship and this shoddy design, but the thing to remember is that like Fanatics is doing this bad at executing someone else's design right now. We are just years away from them designing and producing the NHL jerseys. Which, if they're this bad in a sport where people do still occasionally fight one another with blades on their feet, this is just another, like, harbinger of capitalism murdering everything, man. Like, I'm sure that this is making a lot of people money, but god, these jerseys are just fucking terrible, and I'm glad that Fanatics let me vent about how much I fucking hate them for a second. By coming back, we thought they were dead Their hand is burst through the coffin. We never thought they were dead. They're here to stay because they have money. I'm glad that, like, when all the James Harden stuff went down, it's funny that we're we're back to James Harden for the second time already. But when all the James Harden stuff went down, Michael Rubin did a podcast where basically he was like, you know, if I was with the Sixers, it wouldn't have gone down like this. Like, we would have taken care of James, blah, 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 blah. And, like, basically in so many words saying – I value my quote-unquote friendship that is totally not based on the fact that I have a lot of money and access. That friendship with James Harden means more to me than the Sixers, who like I, you know, I claim to love, and that's why I got involved with the team. When he did that, he showed his true colors, because I still had that small part of me that was like, yeah, like Fanatics is fucking horrible, but... He uses the money to help the Sixers. Uh, I'm okay with it. Like, you know, I mean, I'm a Newcastle fan. I'm okay with these kind of things. But it is now fully fuck fanatics and fully fuck Michael Rubin. Well, that's what I got. Anything from you guys to now lift our spirits? Yeah, I can go next. I have a uh, soccer stuff that I wanted to talk about last week. So now it's a little bit out of date, but still important for our listeners to hear. So I got to give the AFCON and Asian Cup update. Both incredible tournaments that ended with winners that if you said they were the winner before the tournament would not have been a surprise. Qatar did win the Asian Cup at home against, surprisingly, Jordan, which would have been a crazy story if Jordan won, and phenomenal that they beat South Korea in the semis just to make it there. But Qatar did win at home, which makes back-to-back Asian Cup championships for them. Also makes it even more wild how they did so poorly at the World Cup also at home. Their team is good. They're very, very good in Asia and at home, and yet we're the worst World Cup host of all time by performance. So 
you don't know if it was just the 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 moment was too big for them and they couldn't do it, but definitely disappointing for them that they tanked so badly at home when they've been so good otherwise. With AFCON though, Ivory Coast have become the first team to lose 4-0 to Equatorial Guinea, fire their coach, think they were about to be eliminated, get saved as the fourth best third place team because Ghana gives up two stoppage time goals in their last group stage, and then win the final on home soil against the much favored Nigeria, showing that coaches mean jack shit in international soccer. I mean, does the fired coach get a ring? No, he was fired. <laughs> he was not on the team at the time that they won. I mean, if we do NBA rules, though, like James Harden, for the third time in this podcast, is being brought up. But he would get a ring <laughs> from the Sixers. He will, because this is the year. But anyway. It is the year. Actually, it would be even funnier. You send him a ring and say, we couldn't have done it if we didn't fire you. <laughs> so we appreciate the fact that you got fired by us. But yeah, AFCON, Asian Cup, both great. Loved watching them. Sad they're over, but we have other soccer stuff to talk about. So there was a great game in the Netherlands the other week where the Booth brothers were playing against each other, Zach Booth and Taylor Booth. Uh, Zach is a 22-year-old who plays for FC Utrecht, and he used to be at Bayern Munich for a little bit. Uh, his younger brother, Zach, 19, plays for a Dutch team that I cannot pronounce on loan from Leicester City. And in this game... Zach scores the opening goal, the younger brother getting it over on his older brother. So then Taylor scores a hat trick. And we have four American goals in this game. Phenomenal game to watch. It led to a very funny post-game interview from a Dutch man interviewing these two brothers and trying not to be weird about it. And then the last thing I want to talk about was, have either of you heard about what happened with Duncan McGuire? I can't say that I have, no. I've heard of Tim Duncan and Mark McGuire, and that is my sports <laughs> knowledge of those two names. So Duncan McGuire is a forward for Orlando City. He went to Creighton four years of college and was drafted in the MLS Super Draft as the sixth overall pick just back in late 2022. If you do not know, the Super Draft means pretty much nothing at this point because all good young players are already coming through academies. So there are very few draft picks that actually make their rosters at this point. But Duncan did make the Orlando roster, and he ended up scoring 15 goals in all competitions last year and quickly made his way into conversation for the U.S. national team, got his first call up for the January camp this year against Slovenia, and he's almost certainly going to play at the Olympics for the U.S. this year. And with that teams in England started getting interested in him. Orlando has no reason to really let him go because since he's a draft pick, he makes no money whatsoever. His salary is $77,000 a year for a top line forward in a league that most players make a million or two a year. But Blackburn Rovers, a team in the English championship that had previously won the premier league were willing to spend a, Solid amount to get Duncan over there. Two days before deadline day, they sell a young player to another team for about 18 million pounds. So they have the money. So they talk to Orlando, like, all right, we'll make this deal. Duncan gets on the flight, flies over to England. 
on the flight, Blackburn's management team gets told by their owners in India that they do not have the money for this deal and they have to pull out. So they call Orlando City and let them know, hey, we can't do it. Duncan lands in England, finds his phone has blown up, and learns that, oh, actually, we can't do this deal. So another team, Sheffield Wednesday, tries to get him. And while they're talking with Sheffield Wednesday, Blackburn comes back and says, hey, actually, we can do the deal if we do it as a loan now, but with a higher fee in the summer. Orlando says, okay, Duncan wants to go to you guys. We'll do this. They get the deal all done. He gets announced on Twitter, gets unveiled at a game. But unlike all of their other signings, Duncan doesn't play in this first game, and no one's quite sure why. Until it comes out that there was a paperwork error. So the deadline to submit all this paperwork to the league was 10 p.m. on Thursday, February 1st, Greenwich time uh, for the UK. At 9 o'clock, they thought they had submitted the paperwork. Instead, they did save and close instead of save and submit. And they did not realize until the next day. So there's, there's like a website that they're submitting this stuff in. Yes. So Blackburn has to submit all of these documents to the English Football League. And they did save and quit instead of save and submit. They appealed the decision to the Football League saying, hey, it was just an honest mistake. Although it turns out they did this also last year. So this is the second time in a year where they've d- done the same fuck up. In the football Somebody league, needs to be fired. the football Somebody league says, fired. "Hey, the the rules are clear. If you don't submit the paperwork prior to this deadline, there's nothing we can do about it." So Blackburn says, "Unfortunately, Duncan McGuire cannot be registered to play with us, and because it was just a loan with an option to buy, we just canceled the loan, and Duncan McGuire goes back to Orlando." But the problem is that Orlando, having anticipated this money coming in, bought Luis Muriel for $2 million from Atalanta to be their new striker, giving him a much bigger deal than what Duncan McGuire is currently making to be their new striker. And so now Duncan McGuire is back at Orlando as a backup, and all the other MLS teams want him, but Orlando doesn't want to strengthen any team that they could be facing during this season. So they're trying to convince Duncan McGuire that it's okay to be a backup with us for six months and then see what happens in, in the summer, but we're not guaranteeing anything. So this man is now in a worse position than if nothing had happened in the first place. Never let anybody tell you that athletes owe any loyalty to any franchise whatsoever. We'll see what happens with Duncan McGuire if he gets transferred somewhere in MLS on a loan and then sold in the summer. Or if this guy who was expected to start for the U.S. the Olympics just does not play for the next four or five months. But enough about all this soccer crap. Diaz, I know you have stuff that you want to talk about. Well, no, I, I have more soccer crap to talk about. But it's, it's of an older variety. Because late one night, I fell into a Newcastle YouTube hole. I've not fallen into a Newcastle YouTube hole, really. Like, I watched, like, highlights, but... I fell into the history of Newcastle, like specific old matches that happened. And I learned about the greatest game that never happened, which I would love to tell you about right now. It was the 1974 FA Cup quarterfinal 
played at St. James's Park. Newcastle was host to Nottingham Forest. Newcastle was playing in the first division. Forest is playing in the second division. It's a home game for Newcastle. By all accounts, this should be like a, a celebratory occasion. It's very quickly not. Forest scores three minutes in. Newcastle drawback level about five minutes after that. Forest are then up 2-1 going into halftime. It's very anxious around St. James's Park. About 10 minutes into the second half, a Nottingham attacker is dribbling in the box, crosses it into a teammate, and as the teammate jumps, he gets a little bit of an elbow in the back. They call the penalty, and the Newcastle defender is arguing. In his arguing, the, the ref, like, about five or six times says, like, if you keep going on like this, I need to eject you. If you keep going on like this, I need to eject you. And finally, he said it enough times, and he kept coming at him that he had no choice but to show him the red card and mm-hmm. eject him. Forrest convert the penalty. It's 3-1. Newcastle are down a man. There's 30 minutes left. It is a very dire scene. And, I mean, fans are obviously furious with the ref and furious with the decision. About five more minutes goes by, and the fans in the Lees's end, which is like from the TV camera broadcast, the left end, they decide they've had enough. And this entire section, probably about 5,000 fans, and like most of these are like middle-aged people. This isn't even like a young, rowdy crowd. These are just full-grown men that decided that we are going to storm the pitch, not to get at the ref and not to get at any of the players, but to fight the away fans that are in the right end all the way down <laughs> in what is now known as the Gallagher. <laughs> That's very good. They storm the field. It takes about 10, 15 minutes for the police to restore order. Um, obviously, a lot of ejections done for the fans in addition to the red card that Newcastle has shown. But they do resume play. And something happened during this break. It could have been, uh, I, can, I can draw parallels to your Super Bowl 47 blackout, James, where some weird shit happens, and all of a sudden, this game is very much the opposite of what it was before. Newcastle get the penalty in the box. It was a correct decision. This was not referee pressure. I'll be very clear about that. They convert the penalty. It's 3-2. They come back down. It's 3-3. And in the 89th minute, Newcastle finds the winner. The fans storm the pitch again, but this time it is in celebration. Newcastle are through to the semifinal of the FA Cup final, except this is the greatest game that never happens. Nottingham Forest filed a protest, basically saying exactly what you would think. Hey, we were dominating this game, and then their fans did some fuck shit, and then we lost. We only lost because of the fuck shit. Like, that game is complete bullshit. You need to disqualify them. And Newcastle, of course, says, like, look, it wasn't an action by any of our players. The one player who did get, you know, he was dismissed with a red card. This is totally valid. This is legit. The the result must stand. It's unfortunate. We wish our fans didn't do it. We're improving our security measures, but the result has to stand. The Football League, famously competent as it is historically, decides to split the baby. And they said, we're not making Newcastle forfeit, but we're also not going to give you the win. This game simply never happens. And so that you're too... Crazy fan bases don't fight each other. We are ordering a replay at Goodison Park, Everton Stadium. There's nothing really exciting about these. They tied again in the first replay, so they had to play it a third time. (laughs) Newcastle finally won. They went through to the semifinal. They went through to the final. They lost 
Three nothing to Liverpool. And Kevin Keegan, who is a Newcastle hero, but was playing for Liverpool in the 1974 FA Cup final, did score the goal. And that was just like a fun little bit of history for me to learn that this crazy game happened in the quarterfinals. And, you know, ultimately the reason why it isn't talked about more is because Newcastle doesn't win it because their fucking hometown hero rips their heart out in the FA Cup final. It brings back images of, I think, McCarthy was the last name of the goalie for LAFC who came on just as an injury replacement at the end of MLS Cup. And after Maxime Cropo broke his leg coming out right. coming out of the box. Right. And then, you know, of course it's the fucking Philly native Union Academy product who then denies the Union of the Cup. Of course it's a Kevin Keegan that denied Newcastle of the Cup all those years ago. But that game was crazy. And there's a full 20 minute thing about it on YouTube. You can look it up. I watched all of it. It was great. It was a great little timepiece. The broadcast was sponsored by Pepsi Cola, I believe. So they've still been running shit for a lot longer than we realize. No, it, it was it was delightful. And yeah, there's literally the goals didn't happen. The match didn't happen. It is completely erased from history. It is just like Reggie Bush's Heisman. And it's one of the greatest games that never happens. Diaz, speaking of Reggie Bush's Heisman, we all get to play college football on video games this summer. EA Sports College Bowl 25, it is happening, officially announced today. Going to have the craziest NIL bullshit in the league. Going to make Temple somehow a dynasty, pay everyone a million dollars, and then you know have a booster go to jail for fraud. Doesn't matter. I mean, there there is a college football game, as James... Retro College well. Bowl? Retro College Bowl fucks, yo. Everyone should play Retro Bowl and Retro Bowl College. They are both excellent little games. I got on the Switch for like five bucks. You can play it in browser. They slap ass. It's awesome. But here's what I'll say. They don't give you customization. They don't let you mess around with like the appearances of people. And to to get back on track, I, I am fascinated learning about this game that never was. And a game in which the fans got to storm the field twice. That, that's pretty rare, I think. They did. They did, um, except they did, but they didn't get to storm the field at all because the game never happened. Exactly. It never happened. And we're here to remember things that did happen. And to kind of, again, bring that appearance back in, I believe, Xavier, that leads in well to you introducing your category for this week. It does, because there are people who are famous for their ability or for the special moments that, they, that they've had. But there are also others who have more of an aesthetic appeal. So today I want to talk about people with famous facial hair. There were so many options of ways to go. I had like 10 different ones in my mind, which is why I wanted the two of you to make selections on your sports first to help me narrow it down. Eventually got down to about three or four, but in the end, I had to go with a guy whose beard has its own website. So I'm here to talk about the Beard. And the man who's attached to the beard, Brett Kiesel. Okay, so just so you know, you are not getting me to vote for a Pittsburgh Steeler. That's fine. That's James. He's, he's fascinating. James. He's a fascinating individual. James, do you think I didn't already know that? You've tried to sell on some Yankees before. Yeah, but you know, like you can metagame this. I could have picked Socrates, the Brazilian who made beards cool in, in soccer. I chose this because I wanted to. I wanted to talk about, you know, Brett Kiesel. It's, I, I am ready to become more familiar with Brett Kiesel as someone other than an antagonist that I hate. 
I just want to say, you know, there's two sides to every coin. I'm on the exact opposite side of James because I remember when I was in like seventh or eighth grade, I wrote for like a shitty little sports website mm-hmm. and I reviewed the Steelers draft class. And one of the things I said, I was like, look out for Brett Kiesel. He might be a guy. And wouldn't you know it, here we are all these years later and we're Diaz about to put him forth to be a guy. Decades. Hey man, Avon Grove in the playoffs. Let's go. Are we? Yeah, I sent you that thing earlier. Uh, you guys have a 25-year-old cattle rancher from the Midwest as your coach now. For what? For for basketball. We're good at basketball now? First time in seven years, Avon Grover in the playoffs. <laughs> I love it. Dude, what the fuck? I you and you didn't place. say it. <laughs> which, 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 hold on, I'm sorry, which chat? Which chat? In the, host, in, in, in the host chat. chat. Yeah. In the host chat. I missed it's this there. I read it. So that means I am also, you are the least up-to-date person on Avon Grove basketball. That's incredible. God, I think we won like seven games my senior year. This is this is wonderful news. Yeah, you have to go meet that cattle rancher who is apparently a phenomenal basketball coach. But we can do that afterwards. But Brett Kiesel was born September 19th, 1978 in Provo, Utah. That's right. Back-to-back Utahns for me. Even the Booth brothers I talked about earlier are Utahns. Those Mormons produce athletes. I'm glad to know where you stand on Mormons, Xavier. <laughs> Hey, if they're producing great athletes, that's all that matters to me. (laughs) So, Kiesel has a standout high school career in Grable, Wyoming, where he gets named the 1996 USA Today Wyoming Player of the Year. He attends the college you might expect someone from Utah to attend, BYU. He redshirts 1997, barely gets off the bench in 1998. So, he ends up transferring to a JUCO. This one was called Snow College because JUCOs have no creativity in their names. He spends one year at Snow College, but he's like, you know, I have unfinished business, and he goes back to BYU. Now, having transferred from a linebacker to a defensive lineman, he plays two more years as mostly a like run-defending edge and he gets 63 tackles, eight sacks, two forced fumbles. Nothing special, but he does have, like, you know, fairly productive for what he's expected to do on that defense. His BYU page is actually hilarious because he looks, he's clean shaven and looks kind of like just a thumb in it, which, if you're picturing Brett Kiesel in your mind, picture that but with no hair, and it's actually terrifying. I'll send I you can't, a- I don't know what the chin looks like i have no idea what his mouth looks like aside from do do you want to do you want to see a picture i'm here for the facial hair we're here for the facial hair today we don't need to know about naked brett kiesel face i'll send i'll send you it later because he also has bleach blonde hair in this byu picture that's indecent (laughs) (laughs) so after a senior season he does get drafted in the nfl despite you know his relatively modest production by the Pittsburgh Steelers in the seventh round at pick 242 overall. Not quite Mr. Irrelevant, but pretty close. Similar to his college career, not much happens during Kiesel's first couple of professional years. In 2002, he only makes five appearances and gets four tackles. Then he has shoulder surgery and misses the entirety of 2003. Uh, he comes back in 2004, 
again, barely plays, only has nine tackles all season. Today, it would be you know pretty surprising if someone with that level of production wasn't just immediately cut. Hey, you'll you know, get a second it, season for that. Yeah, I mean, at this point, in three seasons, he has 13 tackles and has missed an entire year through injury. But the Steelers kept Kiesel, and it pays off in 2005. This year, he appears in all 16 games, gets 33 tackles, three sacks. In the conference championship game against the Broncos, he strip-sacks Jake Plummer late to seal the game. And then in Super Bowl 40, he gets three tackles as the Steelers beat the Seahawks 21-10. I hate how much the Steelers fetishize continuity, mostly because I hate that it does fucking work most of the time. I mean, yeah, look, at, that's, look at you that's, guys. I mean, fucking sure, John sure. Marble forever. We'll see about forever. <laughs> So, you know, after the season where he's won a ring and played a massive part in it, he signs a new four-year contract and becomes their starting right defensive end. So in 2006, he makes 55 tackles and gets five and a half sacks, which are both career highs. And over the next couple of years, he just continues to give them steady production. Nothing spectacular, but enough where they're like, we don't really need to upgrade at this spot. We can focus building out the roster in other ways. He ends up winning another Super Bowl, Super Bowl 43, where Kiesel is the one who recovers Kurt Warner's fumble on the last play of the game to seal that win. So this is now two, essentially, championship or near-championship sealing plays for Brett Kiesel, you know, kind of endearing him to the Steelers as one of those, not stars, he's, he's not a Troy Polamalu, he's not a Heinz Ward, but he's the everyman that people in a place like Pittsburgh just happen to love. A annoyingly harp about how he plays the game the right way. Oh, definitely. You know it. So 2009 ends up being a down season for the Steelers and for Kiesel. And after the year, he starts growing his now pretty famous beard. He later said, quote, I totally ripped it from hockey after watching the Penguins win the 2009 Stanley Cup uh, with all of their hockey beards. And he started growing it on a hunting trip with his dad. It didn't take long for DeBeard to take on a cult status of its own in Pittsburgh. Like I said, they already loved Kiesel as kind of a cult hero. And now this dude has a fucking mountain man beard that's the size of Diaz's head. The Steelers are great in 2010. And Kiesel and his beard scored the first and only touchdown of their career in week three on a 79-yard pick six against the Buccaneers in Tampa. That's right. We had a big man 79-yard pick six, which was just as phenomenal as you might expect while watching it. I was already thinking about the James Harrison one from that Super Bowl. It's like the single most win probability added big swing in a Super Bowl of all time. Take that James Harrison interception and slow it to about 50%. So as the Steelers continue to win, uh, the beard continued to grow quote. I have my teammates to blame. I said that as long as we're winning games, I'll let this thing go. So it's their fault. Steelers fans created Facebook pages about the beard. Cause this is 2010 and that's what you do. They also created a website called Kiesel beard me, 
where people can Photoshop themselves with Kiesel's beard on it. This is like the, the peak of 2010 internet, and I, I do love that. Kiesel gets named to the Pro Bowl for the first and only time in his career during the season uh, as the Steelers march through the regular season and through the playoffs. And during media week before Super Bowl 45, DeBeard is the star of the show. Jack Passion, who was the two-time defending world champion in the, quote, natural full beard category uh, of the facial hair world championships, was interviewed by the New York Times specifically about Brett Kiesel's beard and said, quote, it is like the coat of a wolf. Pretty high praise, I feel like, from someone with that. From a beard champion, a a beard world champion. NFL Network called it the best NFL beard of all time. There were multiple Media Week interviews just about his beard. He even had to defend the nature of it once. He said, quote, people are saying that I'm taking beard-enhancing drugs, but I'm not. There was one great article that I wanted to kind of read the intro from verbatim. This is how it starts. My first priority Tuesday wasn't interviewing Pittsburgh Steelers defensive end Brett Kiesel. I wanted to speak to The Beard. Kiesel's kisser isn't framed by just any old facial hair. This is something that belongs in the Ripley's Believe It or Not Auditorium, located in nearby Grand Prairie. Eight months of unfettered growth has created a brown, grisly spectacle that is both gross and beautiful at the same time. The reporter then goes on to interview De Beard itself, not Kiesel, with questions such as, Favorite TV show? Answer. The Beard really doesn't watch too much TV. There's other things to do. Why doesn't The Beard have any endorsement deals? Answer, maybe that will happen later. What's the toughest thing about always having to hang out with Brett Kiesel the person? It's not tough at all, The Beard said. The toughest thing is probably Brett's wife. But she's been great through all of this. Hopefully that will carry us through one more game. So I don't know if that's the... with us in the room right now? (laughs) I don't know, you know, if this has ever happened before, but we do have one documented interview of a reporter solely interviewing a man's beard before the Super Bowl. Diesel and the beard, they play well in the Super Bowl, but they do fall to the Green Bay Packers, giving Aaron Rodgers his one and only championship. For now. For For now. now. For now. After this season, the beard does get removed during a ceremony called Sheer De Beard in downtown Pittsburgh. The event raised over $40,000 for the Children's Hospital uh, of Pittsburgh of uh, UPMC. And Brett went on to do this every spring for 10 consecutive years, well after his eventual retirement, raising over $1 million for children's hospitals in the Pittsburgh area during that time. As you both know, I have a very soft spot for charity events involving getting rid of hair. So I feel a very strong kinship with Brett in this, even if it was you know a little bit different in mine being head hair versus his beard hair. But the $1 million raised for children's hospitals can't really complain about. Kiesel goes on to play four more years for the Steelers before retiring in 2015 as a one-club guy. 156 games played overall, all with the Steelers. 408 tackles, 30 sacks. But you know the high point of his career will always be the saga of De Beard. And I couldn't think of anyone who would be a better way to kick off talking about facial hair than with Brett Kiesel. 
I clearly do not want to like someone who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I will admit that you are making it difficult to uh, stay strong in the face of that. It's it's a truly epic beard. And, you know, I'll say what I said back in 2005. When you see an undrafted guy like this, who can come in and Late drafted. Late drafted. Seventh round. You know what? I did the same year uh, Willie Parker was undrafted. That's what I'm getting mixed up. But to to be drafted so late and to make such an impact, all you can say is what a guy. Well, James, let's talk about someone that I assume you do like if you're going to bring them forward. Maybe that's a bad assumption on my part, but I'd love to hear about your guy. I would love to tell you about mine. Let me lead off with the assertion that we all know there are very stupid rules in sports. Now, these range from like the fumble at the end zone touchback is a dumb rule. Hybrid icing. I still don't know what it means. It's a pretty dumb rule. Reaching base on a dropped third strike. It's a pretty dumb rule. The golf carts, golf scorecards, absolutely idiotic. But I posit the dumbest rule in sports is the Yankees' facial hair policy. It is idiotic. It is keeping alive way too many bad mustaches just because guys feel the need to cling to something. For those who don't know, in the 70s, George Steinbrenner, he enacted this facial appearance, this, uh, sorry, general appearance policy. Thank God Kutch had already, you know, cut his dreadlocks before he got traded to the Yankees at the one point because him having to lose those because of the Yankees, that would have been brutal. Get rid of those sideburns. Now, here's one thing that you're not going to hear me say a lot in life. So, Xavier, savor this. To the Yankees' credit, they were not the first team to enact one of these rules. They're just the last one. So, that's why we think it's dumb. But, There were other teams that held on to it for a very, very long time until they faced such a powerful face that they could no longer keep it up anymore. And the guy who had that face, that follicle folk hero, is my guy today. And that guy is former MLB outfielder Greg Vaughn. Okay. So Gregory Lamont Vaughn, Greg Vaughn, uh, is born in Sacramento, July 3rd, 1965. and We'll start off by saying he's from a bit of a baseball family. You may recognize the name of one of his cousins, Mo Vaughn, uh, one-time MVP, two years younger than Greg here. Uh, but Greg, on the other side of the family, has another cousin who'd been in baseball for a while, Jerry Royster, who in 14 years, I'm kind of impressed if you manage 2.4 war over that long of a career, like getting genuine playtime, just a solidly average player. He managed to do that. He also managed to become the first non-Korean to be a manager in the KBO. So there's some pedigree here, and uh, much as I did with Tim Hemmen, I just feel like we need to acknowledge that because it shouldn't be that surprising that Greg Vaughn is a pretty good athlete as a young kid. He takes to baseball early, takes to football too, but starts to focus on baseball as he is getting ready to graduate from JFK High School, which had recently been renamed that after some unpleasantness a decade or two before. He's getting a lot of like traditional school offers. He decides to stay local at Sacramento City College, which had produced a non-zero number of major leaguers at that point. It had some history of sending people to majors. Philadelphia legend Larry Boa probably being the best example of that. And he rakes while he's here. He absolutely fucking rakes. And so he starts to get drafted a lot while he's at Sacramento City College because at the time, there's still two drafts every year, one in January and one in June. So 1984, gets taken in the fifth round by St. Louis in January, says no. In June that year, Milwaukee tries to take him now in the fourth round, still says no. 
Pittsburgh in 1985 in January tries to take him in the first round, still turns him down. Why is it just the NL Central? Well, hold on, because then the California Angels come calling here in the third round in June. He turns them down, goes and wins MVP in the Cape Cod Baseball League, and does leave Sacramento, but just to go to University of Miami for a little bit more seasoning. And then finally, in 1986, Milwaukee figures, let's give it another shot. He is selected for the fifth time, once again, the first round, and he does finally sign a professional baseball contract. Rises to the major, the minors at a pretty regular rate, I'd say, about one seed at each level. Rookie A, double A, and triple A in 1989, when he also gets a little bit of a late season call up for about 38 games with the big league club and puts up a 115 OPS plus. He's solid. He's like the number nine prospect for Baseball America at the time. And then in 1990, in left field, he sets the rookie record for home runs for the franchise, which is still, it's only 17, but it's still solid first season for him where he is not a negative at defense and he's got a slightly above average bat. And that's going to kind of be a lot of his time here in Milwaukee. These are also kind of mid Milwaukee teams. They've got Robin Yount and Paul Molitor, and they'll also have some great guys like BJ Surhoff and Dave Nilsson. But they're never going to finish higher than second in the AL East during this. And they, they have these little bright spots as does Greg Vaughn. 93, big for two reasons. One, it's one of those bright spots. He makes his first American League All-Star team, gets one single in his one at-bat since he's a reserve, and by going through his baseball cards year by year, as I did on Trading Card Database, another excellent website, I found that this is the year that he transitions from what had been a very understated sort of think 90s Barry Bonds mustache. Very, very similar mustache up to this point. He's going full, perfect goatee. It is like as if someone had taken the baseball card and drawn a perfect (laughs) Sharpie goatee on top of him. It is just exactly that, like still pretty thin line work, but clearly defined, looks great, sharp as hell. And this is perhaps what's going to carry him now through a slightly stronger back half of his time with the Brewers. 96, he is going to make his second all-star team and he's going to team up on that all-star team with last year's AL MVP, his cousin Mo Vaughn. I think that's fun that they get to be together here. Does not get to play at all in this game, despite it being right after his 31st birthday. You'd think they could give him a little something there. But the Brewers decide to give him a somewhat belated gift. They are pretty mid this year, once again. They're 52 and 54. They've also adopted a terrible, terrible logo this season for reasons unknown. And so they decide in this walk year for Vaughn, 31 days after that All-Star game, to trade him away. He's going to get sent to the somewhat surprising San Diego Padres. They are 58 and 50. And while Greg Vaughn's production drops slightly in the second half, his OPS plus going from 133, still an above average 110 for the rest of his time in San Diego. And the Padres win the National League West. This is enormous for them. They then go 0-3 in the NLDS against St. Louis, and Greg also goes 0-3 in his only appearances. So that's not great. But the good news is San Diego liked what they saw, and now that he is a free agent, they decide to extend him a three-year, $15 million deal. Unfortunately, that deal begins with his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad 1997. Up to this point, Vaughn has played in about 1,000 games. He's slashing 245, 333, 459. 
perfectly serviceable production from an everyday left fielder who, again, is just a pretty middle-of-the-pack defensive left fielder. Two months into this season, he is batting 178, and he is not only getting heckled on the road now, he is getting heckled in San Diego by the like normally pretty chill Padres fan. That is particularly because he has a 0.94 average with runners in scoring position. Just uh, like atrocious. Going back now to the deadline, like again, he had dropped a little bit when he first got to San Diego, and that's really becoming evident now because he's batted 193 as a Padre now in these like roughly six total months. It is, as manager Bruce Boshi says at the time, it's a humbling game and he's being humbled. Tell that to Sports Illustrated, which also posits that maybe he was struggling with the transition to the National League from the American League. Apparently, a lot more National League pitchers were using breaking balls. I think that's a bullshit excuse, but it was in the article, so I'll try and give him a little bit of credit. To be fair, San Diego as a whole also sucks shit this year. They have 11 players on the IL by the time we're like taking this snapshot of him being truly atrocious two months in. And they will eventually go from first to worst in the four-team NL West this season. He will, at one point in 97, be so bad that even after having just signed this season, they figure, God, we got to... I don't know, just get a change of scenery for him, just something. And so there is a deal that is almost worked out at the deadline with the George Steinbrenner New York Yankees. And this is coming as a major threat to Greg Vaughn's goatee. He even goes and gets a physical with the Yankees doctor. Stuart Henderson looks at Vaughn's surgically repaired right rotator cuff. He does not like what he sees. And Steinbrenner just nixes the deal. San Diego's trying desperately, like they're like, Yo, we also have Ricky Henderson at this point. He's an old Ricky Henderson, but we got Ricky Henderson. We'll give you Ricky Henderson to take Greg Vaughn. Yankees say no. And so he just, he stays on the team and he digs out of the hole a little bit. He finishes 216, 322, 393. But like, this is a bad way to start that $15 million contract. And he takes pride in his work. He does not want to be this bad. And so he goes to a teammate, Tony Gwynn. A good teammate to get some advice to. He, at the age of 37, had just still batted 372. So Tony Gwynn's still killing it at this point. They get back in the lab. They shorten the swing. They reduce his, like, left field pole tendencies. He is ready to mount this redemption campaign. And boy, does he. San Diego and Greg Vaughn both come out of the gate hot. 19-7 and by the end of April. And Vaughn already, at this point, is slashing 242, 320, 473 with five home runs. Greg Vaughn, by the All-Star game, has 30 home runs. He is lighting it up this season, and he is going to now make his third All-Star team, the first one in the National League, the 1998 All-Star game. We're going to take one moment because, sure, you've got your Kyle Ripken. Sure, you've got your Ken Griffey. You've got your Tony Gwynn. You've got the stars. But this is maybe the single most guy-dense All-Star game we've ever had because I'm, I'm bringing up Greg Vaughn here. Do you guys want to guess any of the All-Stars coming up? That's too broad of a question. I don't think I can do that, James. Well, Xavier, I'll turn to you and say some of the all-stars here. Scott Brogius, Bernie Williams, Darren Erstad, and Diaz, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you out here. Moises Alou is also on here. Like, literally, when we're trying to talk about guys with rare all-star appearances on here, to get five of them if we include Vaughn now. All in one all-star game. Absolutely incredible. His cousin, Mo is also there. His cousin Mo Vaughn also getting to play in another All-Star game with Greg Vaughn. Just absolutely phenomenal. 
Love it. And for what it's worth, Greg, he does get in his second at-bat ever. He gets a second hit ever, and he gets two RBI in this game. So love that. After the break, the team does not stop. Neither does Vaughn. He finishes with a career-high OPS plus of 156 with 50 home runs, something that prior to 1990 had literally only been accomplished 17 times in baseball history, even now, only 27 times. Unfortunately, three of those 27, in addition to uh, our buddy Greg Vaughn, happened this year because Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa have their Roger Maris home run chase. And also Ken Griffey leads the American League with 56 home So Greg Vaughn may be the single most forgettable 50 home run campaign in MLB history. Uh, he I'm does still die in the Orioles hit. Brady Anderson had 50, and in case you can't tell, I can pull that immediately because it's (laughs) fucking insane that Brady Anderson hit that many home runs because he was absolutely on steroids that year. Uh, Allegedly, allegedly, sorry. (laughs) I was going to say, I mean, look, Greg Vaughn's explosion happened in 1998 when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were totally not... Absolutely, and and I promise, if there was any suspicion that had come out about Greg Vaughn, I would mention that here. I can find nothing linking him to any tests, any reports, Greg Vaughn seems to be clean. He's still good enough to get a silver slugger. He's still good enough to finish fourth in MVP voting. I just think it's funny that it's like the most forgotten about 50 home run campaign. And it's going to have another superlative in a moment. But first, we have to get to the playoffs. The Padres have completed the first to worst to first trilogy. And now they're going to beat Houston in the NLDS. Going to be Atlanta and the NLCS. They make the World Series for the first time in franchise history. They face the Yankees, those bald faced bastards, the arbiters of facial follicles. And Gwyn and Vaughn combined for three home runs in that first game, and they still lose six to nine, which is incredibly not nice, nor are the three subsequent losses that do hand the Yankees a clean sweep with the 1998 World Series. Xavier is eating this up right now. Hey, that was that was a real good year. That was, that was a real good year. <laughs> I'm I'm happy for you. Um, hey, I ninety eight mi- Yankees best team of all time, in my opinion. They like just by wins, they are the most successful team of all time. Not the most talented team, but the most successful team of all time. I'm just mad that I was about to like come. The very first reaction I had was 1927. I was like, "Fuck, that's still yeah, the Yankees!" God damn it, <laughs> son of a bitch. This is also the one that ties them with the Canadians for most North American titles. It's a huge one for the Yankees. It's devastating for San Diego. And so San Diego is going to blow it up. Greg Vaughn is going to become the only ever 50 home run hitter to be traded following that season. Quick editor's note, because I do not want to lead you astray. That is not entirely true. Greg Vaughn is the first individual to be traded after a 50 home run season. It has happened exactly one other time. That is with Giancarlo Stanton after his 2017 MVP season with the Miami Marlins being traded to the New York Yankees. Now this trade, it, we've talked about Greg Vaughn. We've talked a little bit about his facial hair. We've mostly talked about the guy that he is because I want you to know what kind of person would precipitate the events that are about to happen because Greg Vaughn is going to be traded to the Cincinnati Reds and there's a problem. Cincinnati Reds and baseball in Cincinnati as a whole is very, very old. And once upon a time in the 60s, anyone in Cincinnati could play baseball and wear a beard. But that was in the 1860s. Then we go through the 1900s and beards fall out of fashion. So no one's doing it. 
1960s, something I found when I was looking up facial hair in baseball, was that the Oakland A's in the 60s and later 70s are the ones that are really going to bring it back with the mustache gang, led by like Raleigh Fingers. So Bob Housem, the GM of the Reds, he sees those hippy-dippy freaks out in the Bay Area of California. He says, we will not be having any of that at the prestigious Cincinnati Reds organization whatsoever. And so he, in 1967, enacts the first MLB appearance policy. This is the evil that will later inspire Satan himself, George Steinbrenner, to make the more permanent rule with the Yankees. But it is initially the Reds who enact this. And they are so serious about it that they take the mustache off of the Cincinnati Red Legs mascot. Mr. Red had a mustache up until 1967 and then is a creepy mustacheless freak for the next, like, 20-something years. It's horrifying. Like, that is the level of just control that the Cincinnati Reds organization wants to have over their players here in this moment. And in particular in the nineties, you guys happen to know who's still in charge of the Cincinnati Reds. Is it Nazi Marge shot? It is our very good friend, Marge shot from, uh, RTG zero one three. I, I don't know. Yeah, sorry. Our returning character, Marshawn. Yeah, I, I do not. I do not want to be affiliated as a friend of Marshawn. <laughs> That's absolutely correct. Person whose existence we are aware of, Marshawn. Yeah, and uh, so here's the good news in 1999. As you alluded, if she's not a Nazi, she is at the very least sympathetic to them. And she had said some things particularly sympathetic to Mr. Adolf Hitler prior to this time. So she is in the process of being worked out of the Cincinnati Reds organization. And the like she is still sort of the ultimate power in many ways because she's entrenched herself in people's contracts. But at the time, the team is largely being run by Jim Bowden, who had been named the youngest GM in league history a few years back when he'd been made the GM of the Reds. He is serving this like five-person board that's running them. Jim Bowden is working with the shoestring budget that had been provided by Marge Schott up until this point. She's famously cheap, and this has become so extreme, he has gone to Bud Selig saying, we need to realign the divisions in baseball. We need to do it based on what teams are willing to pay for baseball teams and which ones are not. It's not about geography. These are the teams that are trying, and here's the rest of us, and you need to put me in that one where it's the rest of us and not against these big boys. I appreciate the honesty. Yeah, and like, he hopes for that. He is still trying to compete with this shoestring budget. He's saying that while he's trying to make the best of the situation he has, but it's pretty tough to. He suffers a third straight losing season in 1998. It's the first time that it ever happened to the Cincinnati Reds since the expansion era. So he goes to this five-person board, unbended knees. Please, please, can I trade for one star? Will you let me trade for a single star player? And I acquiesce. And so he makes this trade with San Diego for Greg Vaughn. Gets approval, but now what about that beard? Well, Greg Vaughn says, I don't see myself shaving. I'm just going to show up at spring training with my goatee. When you traded for me, you got the goatee too. Problem is there's literally a clause in the contract for GM Bowden and for managing executive John Allen from March shot. When they signed their contracts, they had to agree to a clause in which they will enforce the personal appearance policy. So the only person that is able to override this is Marge Schott herself. Now, if you have not been with us long enough to have remembered that Marge Schott episode, she's a pretty obstinate person. At this point, she's already constantly flouting the city ban about smoking indoors by smoking here at Cincinnati, which is an indoor stadium at the time. 
she has fired a manager after reaching the NLCS because she had said she was going to earlier and wanted to stick to her guns. The reason she said she was going to is he offended her sensibilities. This is Davey Johnson for sleeping with his fiance in an apartment they owned before they were married. Uh, she, she even at one point prior to this, like she reneged on a deal that they offered to hall of famer, Raleigh fingers. He was about to sign, but would not because he refused to shave his mustache. And when she wouldn't budge on that, Raleigh fingers did not come join Cincinnati. So Point is, Mars shot's stubborn as shit. But maybe, maybe it's because she's being forced out by MLB this time due to those Hitler comments. Maybe it's because she's going to sell later on April 20th. And like, I can't say nice on 420 there because I know that Mars shot is just thinking about it being Hitler's birthday. But <laughs> with all of this, with the potential that Greg Vaughn can bring to this team, Mars shot gives in. Greg Vaughn is allowed to keep his goatee. He is the reason for the dissolution of the appearance policy for the Cincinnati Reds. And I got to say, he's got a great 1999 ahead of him. It's not as good as 1998. It is still good enough for another fourth place MVP finish. 45 home runs is the most for Cincinnati since the 1970s. And they finish a very respectable 96 and 67. That unfortunately was 96 and 62 before a five game losing streak right at the end of the season. Puts them in second in the division by one game and second in the wild card race by one game. In both of them, they missed the playoffs. And Vaughn is done here. You know, he just came in to destroy this facial appearance policy, have one glorious, bright, shining season, and ride off into the sunset. Uh, in fact, he rides towards some rays of sunshine, you could say. He goes with Tampa for another three years, makes another all star game, has 69 games in his last year there. Nice. And then he has one final season in Colorado, which I really only want to mention because he plays with a uh, longtime journeyman catcher, Greg Zahn. And I like that Greg Vaughn and Greg Zahn were in the same lineup sometimes. I'm just thinking uh, about the uh, the Leonard Nimoy Simpsons thing. My work yes. is done. But you didn't do anything, didn't I? <laughs> I didn't know if that would like register with people. I thought about that scene as I was writing these notes. Uh, so I appreciate you, Xavier, for picking me up where, where I let us down. And I appreciate Greg Vaughn for, you know, making baseball just a, a tiny bit more interesting because not only do the Cincinnati Reds players get to have a mustache again, Mr. Red gets to have a mustache again. And frankly, it's a much less terrifying mascot. I know that's crazy to believe. If you've seen Mr. Red, it's already a terrifying mascot. I promise you, if you haven't seen him without the mustache recently, it's far, far worse. But he finishes with a very good career. He's a four-time All-Star, 355 home runs. Lifetime 113 OPS plus north of 30 war, like a great player. But despite that, what I think he's instead best remembered for is this beard that literally beat the most ornery of owners. It is perhaps the goat of goatees. And that is why Greg Vaughn is my guy this week. I, I'm We'll obviously get into it more a little later, but one thing that specifically tickled me looking at Greg Vaughn's Wikipedia page, I was going to read verbatim. Vaughn became eligible for the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 2009. 75% of the vote was necessary for induction and 5% was necessary to stay on the ballot. He received no votes and dropped off the ballot. <laughs> we are going to stretch out this section by reminding you the rules. And now you are set up to know that he just got no votes. I was so hoping you were going to say one person voted for Greg Vaughn. I would have. I, I love the people who get the one Hall of Fame vote because it's because at that point, I mean, I've read enough articles from these voters who say, 
I know he wasn't going to get in, but he had a great career. I wanted to make sure he was like he deserves one. He deserved one. Guys that deserve one vote, and I think Greg Vaughn deserved one vote. Frankly, I think Greg Vaughn deserves at least two votes because that's what you need for induction here. But we can't do that if we only have two guys. We do need a third. Diaz, will you serve for us this time? I absolutely will. And for our third guy this week, we're going to go to the world of hockey. Xavier, you talked about the 2009 Penguins team being the inspiration behind Brett Kiesel's beard. And we're going to talk about that Penguins team a little bit in this story. Um, But we're primarily focusing on the Philadelphia Flyers. Now, there's a very famous goon in the history of the Philadelphia Flyers with his mustache. He graced the cover of the now, if not already defunct, slowly dying Sports Illustrated. Dave the Hammer Schultz. In all time, perhaps the most iconic goon in the history of the NHL. Just for a couple of his highlights. In 536 games, 79 goals to go with 121 assists. But what we will most remember him for is his 2,294 penalty minutes. He had 472 in the Flyers' 74-75 Stanley Cup defense season. And those 472 penalty minutes are still an NHL record to this day. And just based on the way that the game was played now, will probably stand for all time. I don't see anybody really ever getting close enough to that. It seems more unbreakable than like the Wayne Gretzky goal scoring ones. Like I, you could tell me that Connor McDavid is just going to go electric one season and knock out a couple of those single season records. No one's getting 473 penalty minutes. Exactly. It's absolutely incredible. But I mean, he is the greatest goon of all time. And we're not here to talk about the greatest of anything. We're here to talk about the guys, uh, even within the goon category. So I want to talk about a lesser discussed goon who was inspired by Dave the Hammer Schultz, was specifically inspired by his mustache. And when this guy came to Philadelphia and grew a mustache of his own to pay tribute to Schultz, he very quickly became a cult hero. And again, kind of similar to what you brought up, Xavier, we are going to that 2009-2010 period where there's a Facebook page made for this player's mustache. It got up to 10,000 followers at its height, and it was really a staple of early Flyers meme culture. He was a major goon on the ice, but he's done a lot of very positive work since his retirement. That's also worth talking about. I want to talk about one of my favorite goons in the history of the Philadelphia Flyers, Dan Carbom Carcillo. This is, I, I'm not particularly familiar with Carcillo, but I really enjoy this Flyers team. So I am excited to hear this. It was a great time to be a Philadelphia Flyers fan. It was perhaps the last time before this season that I called myself a Philadelphia Flyers fan. So they hold a very warm spot in my heart. I was rooting very hard because I really thought that was the year that the Canucks were going to beat Chicago. So by the time it became like, Chicago, Philly. I I was on your side pretty goddamn strongly. Good, good. I'm glad I'm glad that we had you, and I'm sorry that we provided you with that very familiar sense of playoff disappointment uh, on the ice. We'll get to that more in a little bit. But right now, Dan Carcillo, born January 28, 1985, in King City, Ontario, and like any young lad in Canada, very quickly turned to hockey. Showed a lot of promise at a young age. Uh, At 15, he played for the North York Canadians of the Greater Toronto Hockey League. Next season, he'd go play for the Milton Merchants of the Ontario Junior Hockey League. And then he finally lands with the Sarnia Sting of the Ontario Hockey League. 
I appreciate the alliteration. Oh, yeah. No, they, the Milton Merchants, the Sarnius thing, they're a little creative up there. Uh, and we'll come back to his time with the Sarnius thing a little bit later. But for now, on the ice, very successful rookie season for Carcillo. Across uh, 68 games, he scores 29 goals, 37 assists. But he's still already showing some of those early signs of Gundam, 157 penalty minutes. So he's, he's doing it all at this point, and he's giving us a little preview. The Pittsburgh Penguins saw enough just based on that first season that they drafted him in the third round of the 2003 draft. It's the same year that they took Marc-Andre Fleury first overall, just to give you an idea of the draft and the time that we're talking about. He still spends the entire next season with the Sarnius thing, and then his third season when you play junior hockey, you have three years of eligibility. He splits this between the Sarnius thing, and he went to Mississauga to finish off his junior hockey career. And after that, he goes to play for the Wilkes-Barre Penguins of the AHL. Plays 51 games in his first season in the AHL. 11 goals, 13 assists, solid, nothing spectacular. He had a staggering 311 penalty minutes. How many games again? Sorry, how many? 51 games, 311 penalty minutes. He's averaging just over six penalty minutes a game. You, you'd you be looking at about 500 for 82 games if you extrapolated that to an NHL season. That's what I was trying to do in my head. Right. So on a per-game basis, and we can actually, because it was, it was 76 games. So let's do the math very quickly. Across 76 games, Dave the Hammer Schultz, for his NHL record, had 472 <laughs> penalty minutes. 6.21, I believe that is slightly ahead. 55 games, uh, 311 minutes. 5.6, damn. 51 games, I'm sorry. It was, 51, it was 51 games, but that's still, oh, I think. Oh. Still... Yeah, now it's 6.10. So it's real damn close. It's real damn close. He, he was on an incredible pace. The craziest thing about that, though, is he was not even the team leader in penalty minutes. Dennis Bonvi led the league and the team with 431 penalty minutes. Well, now we know for certain that that definitely beats the hammer. At that point, that's got to be a competition between the two, right? You can't get that many unless you're trying to compete with someone. And they're competing with each other to see who can you know, fuck the most people up and get the most penalty minutes. So it's like, I only get 200 if it's by myself. And I'm like, oh, that feels like a lot. But if my buddy is getting 250... Fuck him, I'm going to get 300. And that's how you get that high. But we think about it. Like, Bonvi had 120 more than Dan Carcillo. 120 penalty minutes for a regular player. That's two more a game. That's two more. That's another penalty a game. Like, if an individual player had 120 penalty minutes, you'd be like, hey, we like the aggression, but you need to rein it in a little bit. And he had that many more minutes than Dan Carcillo. It's incredible. The next season, Dan Carcillo does rein it in a little bit. 52 games, 183 penalty minutes this time. So falls off a pretty significant amount. His goals also go up to 20. And seeing this, we have a nice little trade that we can arrange. The, the Penguins need a goon. They need somebody to protect this Crosby-Malkin team. But Dan Carcillo is starting to stray from the light a little bit. So they trade him to Phoenix for George LaRock. <laughs> George LaRock comes in to be that enforcer that the Penguins need. Dan Carcillo, have fun in Phoenix. Try to be a goal scorer, whatever, man. 18 games he plays with the Phoenix Coyotes to make his NHL debut. 
scored four three goals, three assists. And if he got in one last fight, it would have been really nice. But he did finish with 74 penalty minutes. Next season, uh, his second year with the Coyotes, he starts to find his footing a little more. Uh, 13 goals, 11 assists across 57 games played. 324 penalty minutes for this season, though, for our boy, uh, which did lead the league. Coming back the next season, he starts to rein it in a little bit. Uh, again, same thing that we saw in the AHL. You, you you show your potential, and then you say, hey, I can get this crazy, but I'll bring it back down a little bit. Let me know if you want that level again. In 54 games with the Coyotes, he scores three goals, seven assists, only the 174 penalty minutes. But he was traded midseason to the Flyers. He would play 20 more games with the Flyers. No goals, but he does get four assists and an additional 80 penalty minutes. So we combine those two stints, we get 254, which does make him the back-to-back penalty minutes champion in the NHL. Sounds like something Nolan would get a trophy for to celebrate. Well, it's it's cool that you bring that up because his best, most iconic fight of this year was against the Boston Bruins. It was a guy named Steve Monador uh, on March 29th. Carcillo led the league in fighting major, majors coming in. Monador just had a fight himself the previous night, so the stage was kind of set for this. It was a real good scrap. They both got in good punches. You can look it up on the Hockey Fights YouTube page. I think it's personally a Carcelo win, but it was a good fight. They both got in good punches. I. It's good that there's less fighting. However, I do miss when like sometimes games were presented as bouts between enforcers. We've got this guy. They've got this guy. We've all kind of had this date circled up. Like Zach Cassian with the Canucks still had a couple games. I remember when we saw him in Philly, I'm like, ooh, who's he going to take on tonight? Who's Zach Cassian going for? I and hockey, hockey still has the unwritten rules too. So you have things like Morgan Riley cross-checking Riley Gregg in the face last week after Riley Gregg slap-shotted into an empty net with one second left on the clock. And... Riley gets a five-game suspension for cross-checking a man in the face, but, like, 95% of NHLers are like, nope, he did the right thing. I would have kicked that guy's ass, too, for slap-shotting into an empty net from about one foot out with a second left. Yeah, he's he's paying the five games that he know comes with the thing he needs to do. Uh, what I question about that, though, is, like, what's the line? Okay, wrist shot, that's okay. How powerful of a wrist shot? What if he really fucking snaps that thing? I'm just saying. What What's I mean, the line? Yes, like... Obviously, there's a line there, but with Ridley Gregg, he did wait until he was about a foot from it and then do a full wind-up behind his head and slap it in as time expired. So I am not condoning anyone cross-checking another person in the face, but he was as blatant with it as possible in breaking these unwritten rules. Yeah, we're not endorsing this. We're just saying that NHL players do endorse this. Yes. They have a code on which we will offer no editorial statement other than to say that it does exist. Part of the, the NHL code is there's, there, there's times and places to fight, right? And the Flyers were in the playoffs this year. They were going against the Penguins. And this is that 2009 Penguins team that we were talking about earlier. So it's not a spoiler to say Flyers did lose this series. But the way that they lost it was like particularly painful because they were down 3-2. Game six back in Philadelphia, early second period, Flyers are up 3 nothing. And if you're up 3 nothing in your own building, the last thing that you want to do is get in a fight with the other team and give them something to rally around. 
But Max Talbot was a tiny little guy who knew what to do for the Penguins. So he skated up to Dan Carcillo and said, hey, let's fight. And at first, Carcillo kind of looks at him and you see him like shake him off a little bit. And then Talbot's like, nah, come on, man. Like, let's fight. And Carcillo does like a double take again. And then finally, his inner goon, his inner demons went over. And he says, all right, fuck it. Like, I'm dropping the gloves. And like, Max Talbot's not a fighter. Dan Carcillo is a goon. Dan Carcillo beats the shit out of Max Talbot. But Talbot, as he skates to the penalty box, just puts a finger up to the delirious Philadelphia crowd and says, nope, your guy just did the thing that I wanted him to do. And the Penguins came back to win that game 5-3. Five unanswered is pretty bad. Five unanswered is very bad. It's, it's one of the worst Flyers games I can ever remember watching. And yeah, in the moment, I was like, fuck yeah, Dan Carcillo, kick his fucking ass. And then afterwards, you realize, wow, we, we just got played like a fucking fiddle. Dan Carcillo got played like a fiddle. So again, he's got to kind of like reassess and like, okay, I am a goon, but I need to be a goon in the right times, in the right spots. So in the offseason, this is the offseason where he spends a lot of time in the weight room. He's trying to hone his craft. And he sees all the pictures up of Dave Schultz in the Flyers weight room. And he says, he had a mustache. I'm going to have a mustache. Um, so he grows it. He becomes a cult hero in the city as a result of it. And it's, it's almost impressive that this mustache got as much of following as it did when you look at how fucking thin it was. Like, it is not an impressive mustache by any means. It looks like a mustache that I was probably able to grow at the age of 19. It's wholly unimpressive, but it is his commitment to it and his commitment to being a good flyer that wins over the fan base. So much so that the official Flyers team account sold a shirt that said fear the stash and just had a big toothless grin from Dan Carcillo on it. I was one of the people who bought that shirt. I don't know how many people did, but it was sold by the Flyers officially and I did buy it. Same Um, cult status of the B-ball Paul hoodie that Diaz is wearing at this exact moment. It is, it is time is a flat circle. Dan Carcillo had to get his mustache out of the mud. James, I feel like you just looked it up. Your comment on the mustache. It's, it's fine. I mean, here's the thing. I, what I was going to point out is that like the most famous Baltimore mustache is John Waters, which is almost penciled in to the top of his lip. So like it's, it's beefier than that. I think the not having the front teeth just makes the face in this one. Cause when he's not smiling, it does it. It just kind of looks normal. But when he's smiling, and you see the fact that he doesn't have teeth, and the mustache is kind of crunched up on his face, that's what makes right. it a, a bit of a look. No, it is. It, it's iconic. You know, he's a cult hero for this entire 2009-2010 season. And you know, just like we said, he wants to come back a smarter goon, like a more reliable time and place goon. His penalty minutes go down to 207, and his goals. Uh, and assists both go up. He has 12 goals, 10 assists. But before we get to that uh, that Flyers playoff run, we got to talk about the Winter Classic in 2010. The Flyers go against the Bruins. There has not yet been a fight in the history of the Winter Classic. And Dan Carcillo is not going to pass up this opportunity to make history. Underneath the Green Monster, he and Sean Thornton decide to drop gloves. They have the first fight in the history of the Winter Classic. And while I do give Carcillo the narrow decision in that previous fight we mentioned against Steve Monador, this is a clear knockout. Carcillo wins. Dan Carcillo won the first fight in Winter Classic history. 
Fun fact, I watched that game in Philadelphia because it was uh, in high school when my dad took us to see the Mummers uh, for the first time. I think I was like at Pat's and Gino's and like someone had the screen on outside. And yeah, watch the Winter Classic in Philly. Watch this fight in Philly. I'm, I'm glad to, to bring up these kindred memories of good hockey fights at not tourist traps. They're definitely not tourist traps. Pat's and Gino's are 100% the best place in the city to get a cheesesteak, people. There's no sarcasm in my voice. We... We can all say Pat's is fine. Like if you're going to yes. go get a tourist cheesesteak, Pat's is fine. You can't, you can do a lot worse than that. I'm, I'm, I'm unoffended by a Pat's cheesesteak. It's mm-hmm. the best thing that I can say about it. So he won that winter classic fight, has like his more disciplined season. Coming into the playoffs, he's earning more trust. And he's actually put on the first line to start the playoffs. It's, it's Mike Richards. It's Simone Gagne on the one wing. Excuse me, it's Jeff Carter on the one wing. And it's Dan Carcillo on the other wing. He has earned the trust to play on this top line. And he proves why he got it. In game three, the Flyers are against the Devils. They earned the split in New Jersey. So they're back home for game three in overtime. And Mike Richards is hammering away at the side of the net. Marty Brodeur thinks he might have it covered up. But it just barely leaks out. And who's there to slam it into the net? Dan Carcillo. To win game three of the Flyers series against the Devils. And an all-time great overtime goal reaction because Carcillo scores it and like almost instantly he goes like skate away. He does it like, what do I do? He's like looking for somebody to fucking hug. He has no idea what's going on. (laughs) I've never done this before. Exactly. And I think it was finally Ian LaPerriere actually who tackled him to the ice. An iconic moment in that great cup run. Unfortunately... The other iconic moment for Dan Carcillo in this cup run was in game two. The Flyers were down one nothing to Chicago. They're looking for somebody to set a tone. Carcillo's out there trying to set a tone. He sees Thomas Kompeski in his sights. He comes from a large distance and whiffs entirely. And instead he fucking takes out Jeff Carter, his own teammate. Oof. It was a very nice hit if it was done to an opponent and not a teammate. Kapeski then like just you know skates back for the line shift and then like starts laughing at Carcillo from the bench. They go to commercial breaking like Carcillo's yelling at Kapeski still. It's hilarious because it's like Kapeski's very clearly just saying like, "Listen, man, don't get too angry. You're going to hurt your own teammate again." And Carcillo rage unabated with no direction to go. Have we talked about this exact moment before on the podcast? I think we have. This is bringing up, like, massive deja vu. It could just be me. I don't think it was part of, like, anything. I think it was, like, a uh, a tangent. I'm having a, I do go on a lot flashback of tang- to Diaz talking about this exact same thing. I do go on a lot of tangents. If this podcast were to last long enough, I would have gone on a tangent about everything to have ever happened. So <laughs> It's it's the monkey's hammering away to keyboard. He you know, has that moment, and it's not really great. The Flyers lose the Stanley Cup four games to two. He's still back with the Flyers the next season. So from season three, he's really reining it in now across 57 games, only 127 penalty minutes, but his goal output is also starting to fall off a little bit. Four goals, two assists. Uh, This was a very disappointing Flyers team. They had an incredible regular season and then Chris Pronger got hurt and Chris Pronger was the entire team. So they, Barely managed to beat the Buffalo Sabres in seven games in the first round. And then they were unceremoniously swept by the Boston Bruins en route to their Stanley Cup final victory. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, they did. We don't need to think about who they beat. They just won. <laughs> that is a thing that happens. And after that season, Dan Carso is a free agent. So he can go anywhere he wants. Uh, he chooses to sign with the Chicago Blackhawks, who vanquished him two years prior in the Stanley Cup final. His season here ends early. He he goes to board an opponent. like, And it's not even like, oh, like he was going for a nice hit. Like You'll watch the clip. He just wanted to board him. He missed. He tore his own ACL in the process. But what's interesting about this first season to mention is that he befriends Steve Monador, who he got in that fight with with the Bruins. They're both kind of kindred spirits. You know, they both occupy that goon space. But they're also people who have battled with their coping mechanisms. Both were in recovery for alcoholism and drug abuse. Obviously, there's also the head trauma thing that goes on when you're a goon in this industry. And they're able to, you know, aid each other on their recovery process from their addictions. And it's like, it's a very nice friendship. The next season, Carcillo comes back. He's a rare contributor. Appears in just 23 games, gets two goals and an assist. Only 11 penalty minutes in these 23 games. Starved for him. Absolutely famished. All he needed was a friend, and he finally had Steve Monador, and he's, he's calmed down. He's going to appear four times in the playoffs that year, and because of that, he does get his name etched into the Stanley Cup, even though he did not play in any games in the series when the Blackhawks beat the Bruins in six in the 2013 Stanley Cup Finals. That one was very fun. I hated both of those teams a lot, but the particular way that Boston lost in game six was really fucking funny. Right, yeah, because they were, like, running out the clock for Game 7. And yep. then, oh, well, fuck, like, okay, regroup for overtime, and there's no overtime. So good. A very quick one-two, uh, something Dan Carcillo was very familiar with. That was good. He, he uh, thank you. Becomes a free agent this offseason. Decides to sign with the LA Kings. Largely forgettable. Mid-season, he gets traded to the Rangers. Again, Largely forgettable state with the New York Rangers, but there is one game that he played for the Rangers that we got to talk about. Xavier might even remember this. It's tied 1-1. The Flyers got the split in New York in the first round. The Rangers are coming back to Philly for game three. Dan Carcillo had a very eventful game three for the New York Rangers. Uh, He gets a blindside shoulder from Matt Reed, which flattened him out that the refs just missed entirely. He freaks out on the refs, whatever. They don't see it. He makes an incredible diving, sprawling effort to knock the puck off of, I think it was Scott Hartnell. That was like 100% legit and clean. But the refs called slashing. Again, Carcillo, furious. Can't fucking believe it. But he goes to the sin bin. He does his time. And it's midway through the third period. The Rangers are up 3-1. Dan Carcillo's on the ice. And wouldn't you know it, in his game back against the Flyers in the playoffs, Dan Carcillo scores. His celebration is just my favorite, like, shit-eating celebration I've ever seen in my life. Because he just very slowly raises his arms, slowly skates over towards the glass. And when he gets up to it, he's greeted by, I believe I counted four middle fingers from different Flyers fans. (laughs) Smiling with, like, the fucking grin on his face with his hands raised. Does, like, a replacement-level Ranger get that many middle fingers if they do the same thing? Or does Dan Carcillo get an extra one or two for being a former Flyer? I think it's very specifically because he was a former flyer. Like if it was anybody else and like granted the gesture in and of itself is going to get something, but, yeah. but yeah. And like, I mean, it's just, it is 
the biggest shit eating grin as like he just he, again, he doesn't go into the boards with any kind of velocity. It's just like riding the momentum that was already generated from when he scored and just continuing in that direction until he finally reached the boards to smile at the people giving the middle finger. A, a great moment in the history of him being a goon. Scored one more goal along that playoff run uh, when the Rangers made it to the finals, but they did unfortunately lose to the LA Kings. That was a rough one. It was. Fucking yeah, Justin fuck Williams. that Kings team. <laughs> That's, hey, I was rooting real hard for that Rangers squad. I should maybe not root for your guys' teams when they make the Stanley Cup Finals. It's it. It doesn't. A third time's a charm, though. You know. So it, it's it, there's there's. there's I think the third time was Vancouver. God, this was Philly, Vancouver, and New York losing consecutive Stanley Cup Finals. It's a miserable, miserable stretch for all three of us. But did you lose three overtime games in the same series? No, we just got swept. <laughs> in our second ever President's Cup trophy by the first eight seed to ever advance out of the first round. Boy, I was fucking up today. Uh, another quick editor's note, because I, I I was like conflating the 2012 and the 2014 Kings runs, and it was just really bugging me that I made that mistake without saying anything. Felt like I had to. 2012 was when they beat the Canucks. 2014 is when they beat the Rangers. Gen- genuinely, two, two double overtime losses and an overtime loss, including the Sears winner also double overtime. Genuine question, and I don't mean to pry at your trauma too much, James. Sure, but sure. would it have been more frustrating if they then just got unceremoniously swept themselves in the second round, or is, is there at least a little? No. At least they. We, I'm I'm on record saying this. I think the whole like lose to the best is loser shit. I want any team that has made me miserable to also experience nothing but misery for the rest of their existence. Fuck the Kansas City Chiefs. Perfectly valid perspective. Dan Carcillo. I mean, we don't like losing the Stanley Cup final. Dan Carcillo doesn't like losing the Stanley Cup final, especially when he knows what it feels like to win it. So we said, that thing when I was in Chicago, that worked out pretty well last time. Let me sign one more year back with the Blackhawks. Not a lot of note happening this season for him. He did get a six-game suspension for a cross-check at one point. That was his 12th suspension in his nine-year career. And uh, didn't appear in any of the playoff games. But doesn't matter. He was on the team. He was on the roster. And so when the Blackhawks won the 2015 Stanley Cup final over the Tampa Bay Lightning, Dan Carcillo's name goes into the Stanley Cup for the second time. Technically a Stanley Cup champion. The best kind of Stanley Cup champion. The very best kind of champion. After this season, Carcillo had a very hard decision to make. First of all, he was dealing with the after effects of a concussion sustained during that season. Hadn't really recovered in the way that he expected to. Uh, He's dealing with that. And the other thing he's dealing with is that, unfortunately, in February of that season, February 15th, actually, so nine years to the day that we record this, Steve Monador, his friend, was found dead in his home just four days after his wife gave birth to their son. There's been nothing said definitively to the public about the nature of his death. The autopsy did reveal CTE. Family members had discussed behavioral issues in the time leading up to his death. There's nothing publicly definitively stated about his death. Those are the only facts that we know. Steve Monador's death might not have directly led to Dan Carcillo's decision to retire, but certainly recovering from a concussion himself, his own confidant who he was on the road to recovery with now having gone through this like family tragedy, 
it gives him a different perspective that he may not have had otherwise. And the risks are becoming less than the rewards. So he decides to retire from the NHL. But he's still, the game of hockey is very near and dear to his heart still. So his post-retirement career, I think, is, is almost the most notable thing about his contributions to the game of hockey. As he put it in a, in a Players' Tribune interview when he retired, I don't love the NHL, I love hockey. In 2015, he founded the Chapter 5 Foundation, which connected former players with resources to manage not just post-concussion syndrome, but also generalized anxiety, depression, substance abuse, these kinds of things. He, he established his foundation for it. And this ultimately led to Carcillo founding and becoming CEO of Wasana Health, uh, which is based in Chicago. And they do research in and provide therapy for those seeking to use psychedelics or psychoactive drugs in the treatment of their mental health issues. So primarily they deal in psilocybin. There's some MDMA that his company will also do research with, but primarily it's psilocybin. They will take these drugs in typically smaller doses than a person who's using it recreationally might use. They're guided by a therapist and by almost all clinical accounts of this style of therapy, it is effective. If used safely, guided, with a therapist, guiding your session, these sessions have been very beneficial to these people. And Carcillo's company, Wasana Health, is kind of at the forefront of this, so... Very interesting to see him getting involved with that. Now we know why Diaz truly wants Carcillo in the hall. The man from Mushroom count, from mushroom Country supporting the man who makes money off of mushrooms. Look, There's a conflict from, of interest here. I am from legal Mushroom Country. That is the only statement that we will give regarding this topic. He's done a lot of good work with that Wasana Health Company to try to connect players to resources But it's not just this kind of stuff. He's also looking out for the younger players that are coming up. And I mentioned earlier when I brought up the Sarnius thing, we were going to come back to his stint with them. In 2018, Dan Carcillo came forward with allegations of physical and sexual hazing while a member of the Sarnius thing. He alleged that teammates were involved in the hazing, that the coaching staff was involved in the hazing. And with Carcillo being the first to speak up, several other Sarnia's thing teammates did speak up to corroborate his story. As part of that, there is a current ongoing class action lawsuit against the Ontario Hockey League. This was started in 2020. The most recent update I could find in 2022. The update at that point was just that more people are signing on to be part of the lawsuit. We'll see where it lands. As best as I can tell, currently still pending litigation. But we have this guy who was a goon in his playing career. But now in his second life, he is growing, he is evolving. And I think that's one of the most important things that a person can do and a person can be. He doesn't hide from his past at all. He has been quoted directly as saying in his earlier days, he was, quote, a bully, an abuser, a racist, a homophobe. He leaned into his darkest impulses to be able to be that evil person on the ice that he, his team needed him to be. One thing that he talks about is, you know, he's a father now. And one day his kids are going to be old enough that they're going to look up on YouTube and they're going to see all these fights and all these incidents that he was a part of when he was in the NHL. But what he hopes that they also see 
is the videos about him talking candidly about his time and how that wasn't right. Videos about him advocating for the better mental health treatment of players, which I think is kind of a topic at the forefront of this season where there have been players that have gone on that specific exempt list uh, for dealing with whatever personal issues they might be dealing with. That players are utilizing more and more now, and I think it's because of the kind of conversations that we're seeing started by people like Dan Carcillo. We see more people willing to admit and seek treatment for those mental health issues. And he also hopes that his true legacy will be Wasana Health and the advances in mental health recovery that they're trying to pursue. Ultimately, when we look back on Dan Carcillo's impact on the game of hockey, I think it's undoubtedly a positive one when we consider everything he's done since his retirement and to go along with the least impressive mustache to ever go viral, uh, I got to say, I think he's a surefire guy. Absolutely. And if we move into starting to talk about these three now together, I think Carcillo has some of the most actually important accomplishments of this trio by far. Like the, the work that he's doing now, I know the mustache went viral. Is it truly the mustache doing the work here later on? I think that's the question with Carcillo. How much heavy lifting is the facial hair still really pulling in in that realm? Right. I mean, like the thing I would concede with the Carcillo story as it relates to this week's theme is Carcillo had a mustache phase. He was not necessarily defined by his mustache in a way that I think Brett Kiesel was defined by his mustache and Mo Vaughn, or excuse me, not Mo Vaughn, Greg Vaughn's career-defining moment, perhaps, is his refusal to get rid of his goatee. So if we're talking just the merits of the follicles, I'm, I'm willing to concede that point. I, I think, Carcel, you've, you've pointed out some of the guys already earlier this season that, that may stand up better in relitigation. I think Dan Carcillo is like, guy, resume is very, very strong. But his facial hair, I, I don't think is all quite there, which, which brings us to Greg Vaughn and Brett Kiesel. Yeah, I I don't want to just say I don't like I didn't like Dan Carcillo because I do like Dan Carcillo, but when I was thinking about this topic and I was thinking about the famous facial hair, I like Greg Vaughn. You know, he definitely has a guy career. It wasn't like anything special about his facial hair. It was just the fact that he had facial hair, and the team he went to sucked so bad that they were like, well, maybe we could change the rule so we can have one person who isn't terrible on this team. And I think about that, like, I, I'm trying to think about, like, the facial hair itself. And when I think of Greg Vaughn, if I'm just seeing his goatee, there's nothing about it to me that screams, like, this is an iconic piece of facial hair. I can't think of Brett Kiesel without thinking of a beard bigger than his head that, was used to raise money for charity for 10 consecutive years. And that the best year of his career correlated with the power of this beard to the point where the beard was interviewed at Super Bowl Media Week. Like, Brett Kiesel can't be separated from his beard. Greg Vaughn, I feel like, can be separated from the facial hair, given, you know, uh, I, the 1999 Cincinnati Reds would beg to differ about Greg right. Vaughn being able to be separated by his facial hair. I mean, there are a lot of other issues with the Reds at that point from what we're talking about. Like, he was a four-time All-Star with teams not the Reds, 
like, can we really say that that Reds moment was the the pinnacle of his career? I don't think we can. But De Beard during that 2010 season for Kiesel became such a pinnacle of his career that it became the thing he was known for forever after that moment. Just De Beard. Well, I'm sorry on Greg Vaughn's behalf that he started growing the goatee before he got good. You know, if I'd been able to warn him, hey, hold off on this for a little bit longer, I would have told him to to wait until after 93. Even though, to be fair, hey, four-time All-Star, first All-Star appearance is his first goatee season. Thank you very much. I'm not saying anything about the goatee in general. I'm just... The fucking clean-ass goatee. There's a joke in here about, like, the meme template where it's, like, girls with the time machine go back and like <laughs> James with the time machine don't grow that fucking goatee yet here's beyond being a sealer which like put that to the side because Brett Kiesel's a great guy here's my thing on Brett Kiesel sure that beard got interviewed and you know what happened to that beard it got shaven and then a different beard was grown the next year and it got shaven and then a different beard was grown the next year and on and on and on You're trying to add in career accomplishments of all of these beards that have a lifespan of less than a single year. Like, yeah, one got interviewed and then it was dead and it doesn't exist anymore. This is not Theseus's beard. It doesn't remain the same beard forever. So you're saying saying that one, we cannot credit Brett Kiesel for doing this solely for charity purposes. We can! It's and great! Two, and two, we have to assume that Greg Vaughn never shaved ever and that all of that goatee was always the same goatee that never grew. It was, it was always just that he you painted... Trim. It this never is another grew. thing. Like, this is it, a carefully manicured facial hair. As which means like that like, you ship a feces that, that goatee too. Uh, no, it actually I, is ship of Theseus because some of it remains. It's not just a clear cut. This like how would any of it remain at that point with if you growing out if the facial hair continues to grow out as someone with we all have facial hair as it continues to grow, out. it's going to get shaven, which means everything that was at the bottom is now at the top, which means if you're trying to say that a very close cropped goatee was all the same hair or was never fully replaced, I think you're wrong on that. I'm almost willing to concede being wrong on, like, the Von V. Kiesel. I will not concede that I'm correct that that goatee remains the same goatee and Brett Kiesel's beard is killed every year. That, Like, I am standing firm on that hill. I just want to say that I'm pretty sure on, like, a cellular level, we're completely new people every seven years, so... Technically, we want to ship a Theseus this. Then, None of us con- are who then we conveniently, are. 93 is when he starts the goatee, and 1999 is the Cincinnati Red season. Isn't that seven years? Uh, then it's still seven years. But that would mean by the time no, you get to the Reds, it's, the raw, it, it's, it's a brand new beard, James. No, it's, it's the a brand the new bond. This is good because it would, seven years wouldn't have fully elapsed by the time he's traded because he doesn't have to play out the season. It's about the trade that is the major accomplishment of the beard. We're uh, getting I, way too into like anatomy here. I think there are good arguments for Greg Vaughn. I don't think that is the hill to die on. No, I think that, I think he, you that just, his beard fights nazis and if you want to like take the side of nazis xavier that's fine but like greg von said we are not friends with Mark shot unlike you <laughs> <laughs> I, 
We you all do that one. No one here is a friend of Marge Shot. None of us are leveling any claims at one another that we are friends of Marge Shot. All right, so we have a goatee that possibly fought a Nazi and a beard that it helped. Definitely fought cancer. a Nazi. One hundred percent, it fought a Nazi. And this and is a, a beard Nazi that said- helped cure cancer. Okay. So where, where are we at right now? Raleigh Fingers would not shave his mustache to come onto this team, and they turned down Hall of Famer Raleigh Fingers. Now, far be it for me to besmirch Greg Vaughn, who I've become very fond of in the two weeks that I've had these notes prepared, but Greg Vaughn is not a Hall of Famer by any means. 30 wars solid. You know what Greg Vaughn had is a goatee somehow more powerful than Raleigh Fingers' mustache, which is arguably the greatest mustache in MLB history. I mean, is it more powerful, or were the Reds just that much more desperate at that point and hating Marge Shot already and willing to defy her? Tomato, tomato. Like, <laughs> they, you couldn't defy her, though. That's the thing. She had to be the one to make the call. She had put clauses in the contracts of the people that were going to remain with the organization longer than she was, that they had to enforce this rule. And along comes Greg Vaughn. And look, Xavier, you're clearly dug in, and I respect that. I do not like how much I liked Brett Kiesel by the end of your presentation. I think we know where this is leading, and that's Diaz going to chat GBT. <laughs> that's exactly what I've already done, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I am willing to release the transcripts to show that I was as unbiased as possible in my phrasing. I did what I always do when I don't want to settle the debate between the two of you. It becomes particularly passionate. It feels like it's almost a personal statement to choose one of your sides. I refuse to do that. So I go to ChatGPT and I ask ChatGPT, who is the better guy, Greg Vaughn or Brett Kiesel? Very famously, ChatGPT does not like him choosing between two things. So it gives me a whole thing about to determine who is better would depend on specific criteria, yada, yada, yada. And for the purposes of this episode, I think the specific criteria is the facial hair. So I said, when it comes to facial hair, who is the better guy? According to ChatGPT. When it comes to their facial hair, Brett Kiesel is perhaps more famous for his distinctive and impressive beard. Kiesel's beard became iconic during his NFL career with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and it garnered a lot of attention from fans and media alike. His beard became so well-known that it even had its own fan base and social media following. While Greg Vaughn may have had facial hair during his baseball career, it didn't reach the same level of notoriety or iconic status as <laughs> Kiesel's beard. Therefore, in terms of facial hair, Brett Kiesel is often considered the better known guy and is more associated with a memorable and impressive beard. I'm looking back on this episode now and realizing I am the only person without a Facebook group. So really what I need to tell Greg Vaughn <laughs> when I go back in a time machine is, Greg Vaughn, come with me. We're taking you to the mid-2000s, and you're removed now, so the Cincinnati Reds still have this appearance policy in place. And now we're going to bring 1998 Greg Vaughn to, I don't know, the 2012 Cincinnati Reds, play with Joey Votto? It sounds great. And now we will be able to win. But unfortunately, I don't have that time machine, so it sounds like a two-to-one vote uh, has decided our honors this week. And so it shall be that the player who I very famously said it was, quote, a guy to look out for for the Pittsburgh Steelers when he joined as a late-round draft pick. He proved me right then. He proved Xavier right this time for bringing him up. Welcome to the bearded one, Brett Kiesel, into the Hall of God. You know what? 
I would pick the Pittsburgh Steelers in a matchup right now with the Kansas City Chiefs. So this is probably the softest time to get me on this particular rivalry. Gun to my head, Pittsburgh Steelers. So welcome, Brett Kiesel. And I'm glad that we can do this to honor young Diaz there. If you ever want to continue to, to hear all of the stuff that Diaz and Xavier and myself are saying about guys outside of this episode, uh, there's a lot of ways you can do that, folks. You can go and, and check out our bit.ly slash remember that guy, all one word, all lowercase page, which will have the Blue Sky links, the Discord links, everything about the guys of the day. But we do want to thank a couple people, though. Those are producer Craig and the coders behind him, uh, our musical director, Don Ham, for that lovely theme music. But really, it is those of you who who listen, uh, some of you who reached out last week just to make sure that everything was fine. When, and for the record, everything's good. We don't need to go into any more details, but like everything's good and chill. And we just had to miss a week. So we do apologize for missing that. But we are so glad that you chose to join us once again after that brief break. Look, it's all-star break season. NHL had theirs. NBAs will have just had theirs as this episode came up. We had to have an all-star break. But we're going to come back better for the second half of season nine? Yep. Ten? Yep. Nine. 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 Season nine. Nine, nine, nine. Yes. After that all-star break, we can assure you that everything that glitters is indeed gold. And I have indeed been one of your hosts, James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I've been Diaz. And we all want to wish Dan Carcillo good luck with his latest mental health product, Silo Guyvin. Here's the question, without looking it up, how many teams are in the Big Ten right now? Because I saw the over-unders, and it was just the size of the list after saying over-unders for the Big Ten. It just really got me. I think it's 18. 18? Savior? I mean, it's not June 1st yet, so it wouldn't have... Okay, okay. My 18 was based on June 1st. Yes, yes. We're going, like, next season. Next season, how many teams are in the Big Ten? Is it going to be 20 once we add uh, UCLA and USC, too? Or is it is it 18? It's going to be 19 because it's 17 oh, now and we'll have those two added in. 19? Price is right rules. I take it. Let me let me pull it up one more time to see the this. Statement. I think it's 18. I think Diaz is right. Here we go. Big 10. Ooh, no, wait. I'm sorry. I believe it's 17. I, I did not see UCLA and USC on this list the first time. It might just be 17. Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Maryland, Michigan, Michigan State, Minnesota, Nebraska, Northwestern, the Ohio State University, Oregon, Penn State, Purdue, UCLA, USC, Washington, Wisconsin, 17. Where's Rutgers? Rutgers is not listed on this. Does Rutgers also count? They're not leaving, are they? Uh, I'm looking right now. There's 14 well, there current members, four future members, and then two affiliate members with are Johns Hopkins. Why the fuck is Rutgers, is Rutgers so dumb that they just don't get on this list? <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, I admit, I was literally going off the list. I didn't look it up anymore because it was just like I saw this skeet and I was like, that's such a stupidly long list to follow the phrase Big Ten. Nope. Me and Diaz are both technically right because they have the best kind of right. They will have 18 full members and two additional partial members because Notre Dame is a partial member for hockey and Johns Hopkins is a partial member for men's and women's lacrosse.
So to point out the only person wrong in this situation, the person that asked the question. Now let's get started. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. 